Hey guys, here at The Longest Shortest Time, we know that as a parent, it can be hard to keep your cool. But we also know that most of you have some pretty creative ways of figuring out how to manage the chaos. My trick tends to be hiding in the pantry, eating my daughter's animal crackers, and drinking a box of chocolate milk. Yeah, really dignified. (laughs) Well, right now, we are working on a book called Weird Parenting Wins that will include real tips from real parents on how to manage stress as a parent with kids of all ages. Actually, we really want to include this topic, but we haven't gotten enough entries yet, so we need your help. Here's how. Go to longestshortesttime.com and click participate. Then just fill out the Weird Parenting Wins form. It's super easy. We especially need entries from parents with older kids. So go do it now. And thanks. Bridget is a mom of two. Her kids are teenagers now. But almost 20 years ago, when her son was born, she asked her boss for a more flexible schedule. She wanted to maybe work from home a day or two a week. Editors and bosses at the time just said, no, it's all or nothing. And I was afraid that if I didn't choose all, then I would have nothing and we couldn't pay our bills. So I did. I went back to work full time with my son uh, after he was born. And then I moved jobs. And after uh, my daughter was born, I started working four days a week for a couple years, um, even though I was told it was going to ruin my career. Wow. Uh, Did it? Well, I don't know. I, <laughs> I, I read a book. I want to pull a surprise. I'm directing a pretty cool program at New America. I would say not. I would say definitely not. Bridget Schulte is an award-winning journalist and the author of a book that I brought her in to talk about. Called Overwhelmed. Work, love, and play when no one has the time. And tell me what the book is about. (laughs) What is the book about? Somebody joked and they said it was like the war and peace of work-life issues. Um, The book is really about how crazy modern life has become for for everybody. And it really started with my own experience as a working mother. And I thought it was going to be a book about working mothers and how nuts things are. And it really took me on this journey to understand sort of why things are the way they are and how or if they could be better. And I... So I start really diving into uh, issues that affect working mothers, but then very quickly you see that they affect just about everybody. Bridget makes the case in her book that discrimination against working moms is not just something mean bosses do. It's something that our entire work culture supports. This is The Longest Shortest Time. I'm Hillary Frank, and this is the second episode of our Working Moms series, all about the discrimination working moms face. If you haven't heard our first episode, episode 141, go check that out. It features an amazing mom politician and lots of listeners sharing their stories, your stories. Today, Bridget will help us to understand how the traditional American workplace actively works against mothers and how that negatively impacts everyone. Yep, I'm talking to you people without kids. This is your problem too. We asked Bridget to come be a part of this series on working moms because we loved her book. But she wrote it back in 2014. And some writers, you know, they move on when a book is three years old. They get rusty on a topic. But not Bridget. She is still on fire. It's so frustrating that it isn't sort of like front page news all the time, you know? 
it's like trying to write about the paint drying, you know, because it's become so much part of our reality. They're like, well, what's new? What's the story? It's like the story is that this is unjust <laughs> and this is crazy. And, you know, we're hurting ourselves. We're, you know, when you look at like fertility rates, I mean, people are choosing not to have children because they think it's too hard. And that's crazy that we've made it so hard to have a family in this country. I mean, does nobody care about that? <laughs> you know, we say we're this country of family values and people think it's too hard to have a family. That's wrong. It is wrong, especially when you consider this. Today, 70% of mothers of young children work outside the home. And 40% of all American families are primarily supported by a mother's paycheck. That's almost half of American families. So Bridget, break this down for me. Um, tell me the ways that mothers are discriminated against in the workplace. Oh, man, where do I start? <laughs> um, you know, we tend to think, well, it's, you know, 2017. Haven't we gotten over it? And look at there's women, you know, majority of mothers work and haven't we figured it all out? And, and the bottom line is we really haven't. And if you look at... Um, any, there are any number of things that you could look at. Just a few months ago, there was a survey done that was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. You know, more than three-fourths of the female physicians, the mothers that they that were interviewed, more than three-fourths said they had experienced some form of discrimination uh, at work because of they were, because they were mothers, because they were women or mothers. Um, if you look at pregnancy discrimination and you look at the you know complaints filed with the EEOC, those numbers have been rising in recent years. Um, you know, over in the UK, there was a recent report that surveyed thousands of women, found that about 77% reported some kind of discrimination, whether it was a negative comment like, oh, isn't it too bad you're here at work? Don't you miss your children? To, you know, being passed over for a promotion, um, to uh, being outright fired. Discrimination against working mothers in the United States is illegal, of course. We talked about some of the specific laws in our last episode. But like you also heard in our last episode, mothers still face discrimination in the workplace all the time. Bridget says that's because Americans have some deeply rooted cultural ideas about what a good mother should do, namely not work outside the home. There was another study done that was really revelatory. Shelly Carell, who's just brilliant, she and her colleagues, they got together two different resumes. They were fake resumes. So one was a childless man, one was a father, one was a childless woman, and one was a, was a mother. And they sent them out. And it was fascinating because what came back is that everybody wanted to hire the father. He was the first choice and they were, they were going to give him the most money. And when it came to the women, they were much more inclined to hire the single woman and the, the you know the mother was uh, kind of at the bottom of the barrel, and she was offered like eleven thousand dollars less than the single woman. And what were her qualifications compared to the father? They were all equal. It was the same person. The only thing that was different was kind of identifiers. They changed the name. And then in, in kind of like the activity section, they would say like active in the PTA, which would signal parenthood, or like active in Habitat for Humanity, which kind of didn't signal anything. So they were just very small, little subtle differences, but these were all the exact same resume. The fact that men and women are paid differently is not a new or surprising problem. But this I found stunning. Bridget found economic data showing that the pay gap is not, in fact, being driven by gender, or at least not in the way we think. 
If you take similarly situated men and women in the same jobs, with the same education, with the same um, years of experience, so in other words, two pretty much equal equal um, workers, uh, and you look at their pay, what's really interesting is that childless men and childless women, they're, they're pretty much at parity, something like 96 cents to the dollar. But if you look at mothers and fathers, that's where you see the pay gap. That pay gap between mothers and fathers is 76 cents to the dollar. So, you know, you have to look at, well, why is that? And that goes back to those cultural norms, that when a man becomes a father, he gets what what economists call a fatherhood bonus. He gets a raise because we think, okay, he's going to be the provider and he's going to work harder and he's going to be more dedicated. So we're going to give him more money and reward him for being a father. But she has a child and we think, oh my goodness, she's going to, she's going to be leaving early for the childcare pickup. She's going to be coming in late. She's going to be frazzled. She's going to come in with snow white stickers and barf on her shoulders, which I have done, you know. And so, so they're going to think that she's not as dedicated. She's not as good. She's not as smart. And so then she gets a hit. And just to play devil's advocate here, is isn't there some truth though to that that the mom is going to be the one who's more likely to leave early to have to deal with the childcare, mainly because just like you said, we we have these cultural expectations that it will be the woman if in a heterosexual relationship. Well, I think what's interesting about that, yes and no. Um, you know, uh, yes, that is what we tend to expect. And so sometimes that does happen. But I think a lot of times what ends up happening, if you look at surveys or time diary data, yes, women are like maybe rushing out to do the childcare pickup, you know, or tend to do that. But you know what? They make deals on the playground. You know, <laughs> they make connections like salespeople, uh, you know, in the in the pickup line and many go back to work at night. And so that sort of like pokes a hole at this notion that, uh, you know, that when you leave the office that you are somehow, you know, no longer dedicated or care about your work. So in, in researching this series, one of the articles that I read said that if you search through clip art for an image of a working father, you will find an image of just a guy at work. But if you search for a working mother, you'll find images of like frantic women, like moms with their hands <laughs> full of phones and bottles, like looking disheveled. Right. And that discrepancy tells me that that like discrimination against moms in the workplace is a bigger issue than just some hiring managers being mean, right? It, it's cultural. Oh, it's absolutely cultural. Yeah, it's huge. Where does this stereotype come from? And and is there any truth to it? Because I got to say, I feel a little like a disheveled mom with my hands full of like crap. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, exactly. Well, you know, is it true? So there's absolutely, there's absolutely truth in the fact that most mothers are incredibly time stressed and increasingly fathers and increasingly families. Um, when you look at time diary studies, you know, families today are actually putting in more time at work, you know, about a month more time at, you know, at work than they were, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago. So families are busier. Mothers are busier. When you look at time, again, time diary data, women, you know, people like to say, oh, men and women, we're, we're at parity. You know, we're really not. Men spend a larger proportion of their time at work. And mothers or women spend um, perhaps less time at work, but their days are longer because they actually are still doing two and three times the housework and childcare. Women are still, regardless what 
where you sit on the socioeconomic spectrum, they are still doing the majority of the care work, the child care and the housework, and that is exhausting. They are also doing the majority of the mental labor, the logistics planning, you know, uh, why people seem to think that women are biologically wired to make dentist appointments and summer camp planning is beyond me, and yet that is still the expectation. Um, men still talk about they want to, quote, unquote, help out. Well, that doesn't free you of any of that mental labor, and you're still kind of like directing traffic and then checking up to see if the, you know, if the if the job got done and then if it was done to your standard, which it usually isn't. And so women tend to spend three to five hours a week redoing chores that they think that their partners didn't do very well. So so there is an element of truth to the fact that that women in particular are incredibly time stressed. But why that is, is not just a choice. It's not like women would choose that, like I want to be this crazy super mom. There are reasons for it. There are structural reasons for it, and there are cultural reasons for it. And it's sort of like it's it's formed this this symphony, this music that we're dancing to that we can't even hear. Coming up, Bridget turns up the music. Listen closely, and you'll hear it too. Stay with us. <laughs> We're back with Bridget Schulte, author of Overwhelmed. When we left off, Bridget was just getting into a concept she deeply investigates in her book. It's the concept that researchers call the ideal worker. You're in early, you're out late, you eat lunch at your desk, you, you know, take a plane at the drop of a hat when the boss says to, you know, if there's some big report, you drop everything, you work through the night, you brag about it. You know, that's the ideal worker. I don't have a life. You know, and you can even see it in, um, you know, there's uh, T-shirts in Silicon Valley, like 90 hours a week and loving it. So, you know, this notion of kind of like always on, always working, that work is the most important Uh, That's what the ideal worker has become. And what that is, is basically who, um, who bosses, uh, you know, want to recruit, who bosses want to reward, who they're looking for to promote. There is a survey. Um, this WFD consulting did a survey of top managers and CEOs around the world. And they said, they asked them, who is the ideal worker? And more than three fourths came back and they said, someone with no caregiving responsibilities. Well, well, who is that? You know, that's certainly not any mother. Um, it doesn't really refer to, uh, many young fathers, but it's this, this notion that, you know, kind of work is this completely separate sphere and it should be completely all consuming and you should dedicate your life to it and sacrifice everything else to it. Um, you know, and it's part of what keeps men and women frozen in these gender roles where men have to work this way. And if they try to work differently, the research shows they're actually punished for it. They're punished more harshly than women are. How so? How would they be punished? Well, the, there was a really interesting study out of Rutgers that showed that when men were, uh, were above board or, you know, kind of honest about their caregiving responsibilities. Like if they were honest about, I need to do the childcare pickup, not just in an emergency, but every Tuesday and Thursday, or, uh, I need to go and take my parent to this doctor's appointment, you know, every Wednesday, not just like, aren't I a great guy? Cause I'm coaching little league, you know, like there's, there's this sort of line, like a little bit of, of, um, 
of involvement is sort of celebrated, like what a great dad, but almost too much and regular involvement, that's when the punishment sets in. And men are considered, um, they're seen as uh, less dedicated, uh, passed over for promotion, more likely to be fired or seen as a wimp. So you've got these really powerful cultural notions that are actually shaping our behavior, shaping the way that we think, and really constraining people in the choices they're able to make. So, so the expectations for an ideal worker guy who, who does end up having a kid, what does that look like in this ideal world? Well, the, I, the expectations are he's going to keep doing that. And, you know, maybe he'll take uh, maybe one or two vacation days when his wife has a, you know, or his partner has a child. You know, why would he need to take any kind of paid leave? Because, you know, doesn't he have a wife to do that? And then the expectation is that the wife or the partner will take care of all the other family responsibilities. Um, you know, I was just... It, that's funny. I was just thinking about that this morning. There was a time uh, I worked at the Washington Post for many years, and I was at a an early morning meeting, and my kids were really little, and the traffic was bad, and I got there, and I did. I think I had, like, baby barf on my shoulder, and I hadn't finished my taxes, and, you know, like, the laundry wasn't folded, and I was just feeling totally disheveled and stressed. You know, I fly into this meeting, and I'm late, and we're supposed to be talking about, you know, coverage and big stories, and there's an editor there, and he is so calm and collected and he has all these really great ideas and you know it turns out he had some big crisis like I did you know his taxes weren't done and this and that but his wife was at home doing it and so he was able to totally focus on work where I was trying to do both of those things I was trying to live both of those lives it's like well no wonder you kind of rose to the top and you're considered you know so easy who wouldn't want somebody who could be totally dedicated because they got somebody else at home doing everything but the bottom line is that's not the reality that most people live anymore. Because, you know, because again, it's that myth that's become so powerful that really uh, blinds us to what the modern reality is that, that people live and experience, whether you're a, a man or a woman or whether you've got kids or not. It's kind of, it's freezing all of us in place. What are the ways that the modern workplace is set up to accommodate only the ideal worker today? And, and, how is that impacting mothers who work outside the home? Yeah, no, there's, you know, the workplace is still, um, you know, it's it's mystifying sometimes to me when I think about it. Why would we set up these systems that would disadvantage so many people who could do really great work? All because why? We think that they really should be home with the kids and and so that if they're working, it's their private choice. And so why should we help them? You know, honestly, that is um that is part of the attitude that you'll that you'll hear from people. So so how is it that the workplace doesn't help mothers? Well, if you have a FaceTime culture, then that rewards people who are always there at the office. And if you have a culture where you have to beg for a flexible schedule or you have to ask permission to work remotely, um, you know, that work system is seen as an accommodation. And sometimes they'll only give it to mothers. So then, then it becomes sort of like, um, uh, you know, kind of like a bone you throw to a lesser worker so that you can make your gender numbers look good, but you still kind of don't really value them. You know, there, there's little stuff too, even like, you know, happy hour drinks where, where, where a lot of networking happens or like even bonding with your coworkers, you know, having that happen after work rather than say a lunchtime thing. 
Right. Or, or early morning meetings. You know, it's, it's interesting. It's like, uh, it's not necessarily that there's like this nefarious cabal out there that's, that's working together to keep women down or back, you know, but there are all of these, uh, you know, it's sort of like, it's not necessarily, uh, intentional, but it's like the way that it's set up is to be very exclusive, to not kind of, you have to think a little bit harder. You know, it was interesting in that in that report that was done in the UK, where seventy seven percent of the of the women surveyed said that they'd experienced some kind of um, motherhood discrimination. Only one reported it to her employer. So there's this feeling that if you bring it up, you're going to rock the boat, or you're going to be seen as not a team player. There's a lot of silence out there because there really aren't systems for people to like bring these kinds of. Um, concerns. And there's, there's also this really firm belief that nothing's going to change. So why bother? Clearly, the ideal worker myth creates a problem for mothers. But turns out, it doesn't help other workers either. You know, it's really interesting. Our brain works in actually two kind of... Um, on two speeds, if you will. And one is this concentrated mode. You're at your desk, you're, you know, typing away, you're doing stuff. And the other is this kind of spacey daydreamy mode. And that's where ideas come. That's, there've actually been scientists who've mapped that. That's where you get insight and innovation. And so, you know, if you really want to do great work, you kind of need both of those. You need to have the time and space where you're rested to have a really cool idea come. And then that you can actually have the energy in a concentrated space to then actually perform and to do that work. And so if you're always on, your brain is in what they call vigilant mode, and you're just kind of always looking for the next thing, and you're kind of worried and you're stressed. And so you never give yourself opportunity for those big thoughts. The cultural emphasis on work here in the United States does make us extremely productive. But other countries like France and Denmark are just about as productive per hour. There, the culture is if you can't get your work done in 37.5 hours a week, there's something wrong with you. Whereas here, if you can't get your work done in 37.5 hours a week or 40 hours a week, wow, you must be really important. Right. Yeah, that's a really different way of thinking about it. So I think that's one thing that I I would just really encourage people to just kind of like, we all need this collective sigh and pause and just like, wait a minute, what are we doing? Uh, what are we expecting? And what is really going to get us the best work? You know, because, uh, you know, one out of every two physicians is burned out right now. We're going to have a huge shortage of physicians in, you know, predicted in the coming years. How is that good for anybody? Do I want somebody doing open heart surgery on me who is exhausted and burned out? No. So I think that we need to start asking some really basic questions about how we've organized work, who benefits from it, and who's suffering. And I would argue everybody is, and particularly mothers. Well, why do you think the American workplace still seems to revolve around this concept of the ideal worker if it is not ideal and maybe was never ideal in the first place? You know, the eight-hour workday um, came from Henry Ford, who hired his own uh, researchers and wanted to see how far could you push a manual laborer before they became sick and they started making mistakes that would be costly. And that's where the eight-hour workday, five days a week, came from. So we're basically still kind of tied to a work system <laughs> that is much better at producing, you know, 1912 automobiles than we are, <laughs> you know, Silicon Valley and, you know, high-tech you know, modern knowledge work. So we don't really know. There's some estimates that most knowledge workers can probably put in maybe four or five hours, uh, you know, of good work a day. And then after that, your brain just simply doesn't work. So, so why we can't 
seem to understand that and why we think that if we work smart, that there's, that there's an element of slacking off is really fascinating, you know, and, and it's really important because then we talk, when we talk about flexible work, the first thing is like, well, you know, I don't want any slackers. I don't want anybody who's going to work less rather than thinking we're going to work differently. I remember I did work a four-day work week for a while, and I remember putting together a big series that ended up winning an award. And an editor, like, even said, "Wow, she did that on a four-day work week! You know, <laughs> what? Like what? Like all of a sudden you get stupid if you don't work five days a week?" So there are some really interesting kind of beliefs that we've never really um, examined. What about people who are in shift work jobs or work part time? How does discrimination impact their lives as workers and parents? Um, so for, for low wage work or for single moms in particular, we have this bizarre schizophrenia in this country that if you somehow have resources, then you really should be home. I'm thinking about, um, you know, when Mitt Romney was running for, for president, you know, a couple of years ago, and he said in one speech one day, you know, oh, if you can, just uh, how wonderful that is uh, for one parent, you know, quote unquote, the mother should be home with the children. You know, what an amazing thing to start those children off on the right foot and how, how special that is. And then a few days later said, oh, for all of you mothers on on welfare, you know, you really just need to learn the value of work. Wow. <laughs> if, you're, if you have resources and education, well, then you should be home. But if you don't have resources and you don't edu- have education, well, then you shouldn't be home or you don't deserve to be home. You should be at work. So we have these weird, uh, completely opposing standards for what we expect women and mothers to do, basically depend- depending upon their um, socioeconomic status and their education, which makes absolutely no sense. Do we see the notion of the ideal worker also being harmful to people who don't have children? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because it's like not just that you have a family should be the only reason that you need to have time for your life. You know, you need to have time for your life regardless of the reason, just because you're human. In a minute, the mistake that caused all the working mother guilt of our era. Yep, it's all just one big mistake. Don't go away. Oh, you have your mouth pulled, you? Advertisements. Hi, this is Guy Raz. And I'm Mindy Thomas. And together we bring you Wow in the World. NPR's podcast for curious kids and the grown-ups. And we're back with all new episodes. New scientific adventures both in and out of this world. Find Wow in the World on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are back with Bridget Schulte. Now, the ideal worker is not the only cultural myth that's wreaking havoc on women in the workplace. There's also the myth of the ideal mother who doesn't work outside the home. The General Social Survey recently asked Americans if they thought it would be better for a child if their mother worked outside the home. And most people said no, it wouldn't. The study did not ask a similar question about fathers. But there are lots of problems with this concept of the ideal mother. For starters, it negatively impacts women in the workforce who don't have children. 
because that is the that is the ideal. The best women are mothers. You know that that is sort of a natural thing that you want to do. I mean, think about it. It's like if you if you choose not to have children, you know, um, people ask. It's like, oh, don't you miss that? Are you sure that was the right decision? You know, thankfully now there's more writing about why people are choosing that, and and it's becoming less stigmatized. But it's still pretty stigmatized, and that's because of that ideal mother notion that's out there. So then, if you're a single mother, woman and you're trying to work like an ideal worker, um, you still don't get the same benefit that a guy does because they think there's something just a little bit wrong with you because you really shouldn't be the ideal worker. You really should have uh, a family. And so, well, isn't that too bad? You know, it's kind of like spinsterize you. Another problem, mothers who do work report feeling extreme guilt. Bridget can relate. I had, you know, a pretty classic childhood in the 60s and early 70s where my dad worked outside the home and my mom was a homemaker. So that, you know, when my kids were little and I was working outside the home, I felt really guilty and bad. And it was weird. I was sort of like really drawn to my work and sort of like dedicated and and passionate about it in the way that my dad was passionate about his work. But then I was also really, I loved being a mom and I, you know, really wanted to have that time and kind of, you know, that that sense of um, connection with my kids that my mom had with us. So it's like you're, you're trying to do both of these things. And what I didn't realize, um, there's actually time diary data that shows that working mothers today spend more time with their children than those at-home moms did in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And I remember when I read that study, I'm like, that is impossible. How can that be? Because I feel so guilty. But then when you look at how people spend time, how particularly women spend time, it starts to make sense that in the, you know, in the last few decades, women have given up time for sleep. They've given up time for personal care. They've given up time for adult friendships and relationships. They've also given up more time with their spouse or partner. And they spend almost all of their leisure time or their free time with their children. So, I mean, I think that was, that blew my mind. It's like that, that women are spending more time and it's actually more interactive time. There's more reading, there's more talking, there's more playing with. You know, when you think about it, you know, like, <laughs> I mean, I loved my mom, uh, but, you know, she would be gone shopping or to estate sales or whatever she did, and we'd be locked out of the house. We'd take the bus home from school, and we just learned to break the basement window and just let ourselves in, you know? But, like, if I did that as a working mother, I mean, somebody would call Child Protective Services, you know? Definitely. So it's like the standards have changed. So my mom didn't play with us. My mom didn't read to us. She was a great mom, but she was always kind of doing the laundry or doing her own thing or um, on the phone, you know? So, so what we do with our kids is really different. Bridget wanted to know, if I'm actually spending more time with my kids than my mom did with us... Why the guilt? She found a study from the 1980s. That showed that working mothers never saw their children, you know, and, and it sort of reinforced what everybody was afraid of. Oh, my God, if mothers go to work, they become selfish, they abandon their children. This is awful. This is everything we were afraid of. You know, it's going to be the destruction of the family. You know, Western civilization is going to crumble. This is awful. And uh, and the press went crazy with it. And there were all sorts of headlines at the time in the late 80s, early 90s. You know, parents are AWOL, mothers are terrible, mean, selfish, bad mothers, working mothers. And what's what's troubling is that study was actually incorrect. 
that the the um, study author, a guy named John Robinson, who studies time, uh, was at the University of Maryland at the time. He actually made a miscalculation in all the data, and but by the time he realized it, and then tried to go back to all the reporters that he talked to about how mean and bad mothers were, they didn't want to talk to him anymore. It's like you know, a correction is like a teeny tiny little you know paragraph, uh, you know, on A two in most newspapers. You don't get the same big splash of the page one headlines, and so the fact that that was a, a bad study never actually made it out into the national consciousness. And instead, we're left with this notion that once women entered the workforce, they abandoned their children, and then you know they're going to hurt families, and that was just never true. Well, Bridget, this is like clearly a, a really deeply ingrained cultural issue in the United States. How do we change the situation? And and whose job is it to do that? Oh, that's what I'm working on. <laughs> it's such a good question. How do you change it? It's like you have to you have to think about things on the individual level, on the organizational level, and then the societal level. You know, there are things that you can do as an individual, and sometimes that's kind of where you have to start because that's all you have the power to do. You know, so on the individual level, I think the most important thing is to kind of just stop and start asking yourself why you're making the decisions that you are or what's shaping the the way you think. And if it's because you're dancing to this kind of uh, unhidden, unheard tune of the ideal mother or the ideal worker, start to be aware of that and start to stop, you know, kind of catch yourself and ask yourself those questions. Is this what I really want? Is this what I really want for my family? Is this what I really want for my kids? If I bake these cupcakes at two in the morning, am I doing it because I want all the other mothers to see that even though I'm a working mother, I'm a really good mother, you know, or, you know, am I doing it for me or am I really doing it for my kids because I really love them and I want them to have cupcakes on Valentine's Day. Never mind, I'm going to be so exhausted in the morning. I'm going to yell at these very kids that I'm doing it out of love. You know, like start asking yourself why you're doing some of the kind of crazy things. Another thing Bridget says you can do is start paying attention to your impact at your job. And if you are, you know, a team member or a manager or, you know, watch the way that you speak. You know, I remember getting a an email at the post and somebody was trying to praise somebody saying, oh, you know, she's amazing. She's worked for the past, you know, eight weekends. She's been here all weekend long and she's worked late every night. Isn't she amazing? Um, you know, so then what does that do? You as the boss are setting this standard. Oh my God, if I'm going to get praise from the boss or if I'm going to get notice, I better match that and exceed it. So watch the language, how you how you dole out, you know, praise for good performance. How about this was an amazing piece of work or look at how great this team worked together. Think about how you value and communicate the work. Um, then you also have to look at the policies. You know, I just wrote a piece called The Case Against Maternity Leave and everybody freaked out. But if you look, if you, again, if you think that caregiving is something that only women do, then you would only offer maternity leave. And guess what you've just done? You have just reinforced the notion that only mothers give care. And if you go all the way back to the Pleistocene era, that's not the way that humans actually have evolved and survived. And what's fascinating is the newest science, you know, whether it's brain science or looking at hormones, men are also wired for nurture. Uh, so, so again, I think that companies really need to look at 
kind of degendering their policies. You know, you don't have a gendered 401k plan. You don't have a gendered vacation plan. Why would you have a gendered leave plan when, you know, you have to kind of recognize that men and women do uh, do need time to to care for others. And, you know, when you do that, that goes a long way to kind of taking some of the stigma away that right now really falls on women. What does it actually mean for a workplace or a country, for that matter, to contend with these questions? We're going to hear about that in the next episode of It's a Real Mother. And they are such good stories, you guys. Come back for more. People, you gotta go read Bridget's book, Overwhelmed, Work, Love, and Play When No One Has the Time. You will learn so much mind-blowing stuff, I promise. Find a link to the book and suggestions of how you can help others to hear that invisible music playing in offices all around the country at itsarealmother.com. You can also find a video there made by the great Pentagram Design. We want you to share it on social media to help make work life better for moms and for all of us, really. Please, please, please also use our hashtag, It's a Real Mother, to share the things you've noticed at jobs that could be more parent-friendly, or to call attention to the great stuff that your employers are doing already. And if you're an ideal worker or a recovering ideal worker, tell us all about it in the comments for this episode. That's episode 142. This podcast is produced by me, Hilary Frank, with Abigail Keel and Kristen Clark, with help from Jackie Sajiko. We are edited by Peter Clowney. Our engineers are Pete Karam and Jared O'Connell. Our technical director is the Reverend John Delore. Our music is performed by hotmoms.gov and directed by Allison Layton Brown. We get editorial support from Amory Baldonado, Antonia Akatunde, and Rekha Murthy. Special thanks this week to Simone McPhail and New America. Next week. On The Longest Shortest Time, we're visiting a workplace with a different definition of the ideal worker. I would have people come with their babies and sit around and, and knit and play the flute or something. I think it'd be wonderful. Don't miss this episode, the third in our series. Subscribe to The Longest Shortest Time in Stitcher or Apple Podcasts or wherever you like. You guys, the life of a working mother is a real mother. Let's change it. It's a real mother.com. Dirt, 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 dirt.